Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating, and today we'll be talking to Coulter George, author of How Dead Languages Work, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Thanks uh, for taking time to be on the podcast, Coulter. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's let's start in with why you decided to write this book. So it's on dead languages, and you are a professor of classics at the University of Virginia. But most of your publications focus on, on Latin and Greek how did you come to write a book that also includes Sanskrit, Old English, Old Irish, and, and Hebrew, as well as Latin and Greek? Uh, well, I've always been interested in a pretty wide variety of languages. Uh, it's true that uh, the first language that I um, gravitated to was Latin. I, in fact, started Latin in third grade. Uh, and uh, after that, added various um, ancient languages. Um, I started ancient Greek in 10th grade, did a semester of Old Norse in 11th grade. Uh, then as a uh, freshman at, at Rice, I um, went to the bookstore uh, and uh, the, the start of classes, did silent classes to take, and because uh, I had one free elective um, and uh, saw that they had a textbook with a cuneiform in it. Uh, so I uh, decided, oh, I have to learn Akkadian as well. Uh, so all along the way, I've always been, uh, I don't know, omnivorous in terms of the languages that I'd, I'd like to be, um, um, that I'd like to learn and, and be working with. Uh, so yeah, one, one can't be a specialist in all of them. Uh, so Greek is really the language that I focus on the most. Uh, but uh, it's hard not to uh, be interested, to sort of notice similarities and differences mm-hmm. between them to appreciate uh, both the similarities and the differences. And since uh, not a lot of people are lucky enough to have the opportunity to learn uh, this many uh, ancient languages, to, to get a chance to share uh, a lot of what makes them um, uh, so special to me. Um, I mean, in terms of the, so that's sort of the, the personal reason mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. Uh, to, to write the book, but in, in terms of a more, I don't know, wider um, uh, public context, I, I, I don't think that Anglophones generally do a very good job of learning other languages. Um, mm-hmm. And this is understandable because we all have uh, a vast uh, number of um, competing demands on our time. And mm-hmm. with so much stuff having been translated into English and with it being so easy to find uh, to sort of when you're overseas to communicate with people in English, uh, it, it's understandable that, that many Anglophones decide it's, it's not worth the trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but naturally, I think this is a huge shame. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I do think it's um, uh, important to try to share this. Um, then the question becomes why dead languages and not mm-hmm. modern languages? Uh, that's more to do with my own personal uh, inclinations. Of, I think that a, a book like this on modern languages would also be uh, great fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm personally interested enough in the past that ancient medieval languages are the ones that uh, I'm uh, that I've chosen to work with uh, mm-hmm. professionally. Uh, and and I, I do have the sense that in 21st century America, there's a sort of um, there's a sort of utopian streak about technology uh, fixing everything, that we can be a little bit uh, uh, short-sighted about um, the whole of human history that took place before the internet age. Uh, I think it's nice to gain a certain amount of uh, 
temporal perspective on things mm -hmm. by uh, uh, understanding that, you know, there's thousands of years worth of um, literature and history and philosophy that we'd be drawing on and not just be focused on what's in everybody's Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. And uh, this book definitely gives a tour of a lot of important uh, we could say pre-modern literature and, and culture. So maybe let's talk a little bit about the, the term dead languages. I mean, um, it's a term that gets tossed around a lot, but um, are these languages really dead? Uh, should they just be contrasted to modern languages? What, what do you mean by that term? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, of course. Um, I, uh, for me, the term, uh, I use it in a lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek mm -hmm. sort of way. Um, uh, what I like about it as an expression is the fact that it does at some level capture uh, at an intuitive level the fact that we think about latin and ancient greek and biblical hebrew and sanskrit in a different way from how we think about sanskrit uh, that's from uh, think about spanish and french and german mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and there are, uh, if you take a beginning latin or greek or sanskrit class you're going to be doing different things from if you're taking a mm -hmm. beginning spanish french or german class mm -hmm. uh and uh and this makes sense given the different uh, aims that you have uh if you are learning spanish or french you're probably not just wanting to read cervantes or proust you probably also want to travel to spanish and preach uh spanish and french uh, language countries mm -hmm. uh and to communicate with people whereas uh despite um uh, some noble efforts to get spoken latin and ancient greek and sanskrit going it's mm -hmm. still it's, it's, it's unlikely to be people's primary motivation for learning the languages right. uh which really is generally to, to be able to read texts uh so i i do think it can be useful to um, uh, uh, to, to bundle these languages together as a group mm -hmm. in opposition to uh, the widely spoken modern languages of today. And the other thing too, that um, uh, I, I think it's worth uh, sort of um, saying in, in terms of, I mean, are these languages really dead or not? Mm -hmm. uh, is that um, the, uh, it's deliberate in the book that I use the present tense works after dead languages. Uh, mm -hmm. as a way to actually invite this question. Uh, if we can still think about these languages as systems that operate in a sort of timeless, omnitemporal way, mm -hmm. um, uh, can, uh, do we really want to, as indicated by a present tense, um, mm -hmm. uh, to what extent are they dead? Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there's, there's no simple answer to the question. Mm -hmm. In one sense, uh, yeah, of, of course they're dead in, in the sense that you, they're not, uh, you're not gonna be able to go into a pub and order a Guinness using Old Irish. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as long as people can have their intellectual horizons uh, expanded by mm -hmm. um, uh, learning some Greek, learning some Old Irish, learning some Sanskrit, uh, then no, of course they're, they're still alive and have uh, much to communicate to us. Right, right. Yeah, and so in, in the book you're, you're focusing, um, so you're focusing on dead languages, focusing on languages that have sort of been established or frozen in some sense in the, in the past in this form. Um, but you're also thinking about some, a bit of a broader question about language more generally, and that's the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Uh, you mentioned this in your, your introduction, and this is a, a, a hypothesis that isn't, isn't just about uh, dead languages, it's just about language um, in, in general. So maybe you could tell our listeners, for those who aren't uh, familiar with it, what the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is and um, how this is relevant to what you're doing in this book. Uh, so it's a hypothesis about the relationship between language and thought. Um, it exists in several different forms. There are stronger and, and weaker uh, formulations of it. 
uh, and the stronger ones tend to suggest that um, language determines the way we think about the world. Weaker ones uh, suggest merely that it influences the way we think about the world. Uh, understand, um, uh, reject the, the stronger version of the hypothesis on the grounds that um, we are actually at some basic level pretty good at translating things, uh, ideas from, from one language into another with some rough degree of equivalence. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, maybe uh, you don't uh, have a, a particular word for one concept in one language, but that doesn't mean that that language can't uh, coin a new word for that concept or express it through a phrase or mm -hmm. borrow a word for the concept. Uh, so uh, it, 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 um, as often comes up in the sort of the idea of uh, Eskimos having uh, umpteen number of different words for snow. Uh, well, uh, this trope uh, simply isn't particularly accurate uh, in that um, uh, it requires uh, a lot of uh, fuzzy counting about what counts as words for snow mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, uh, people in other languages are also perfectly capable of coming up, of describing lots of different types of snow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, with, with the different words. So um, in, in the sort of strong sense, as it often comes up with popular media, it's uh, largely rejected. That said, um, there certainly are some things that it is easier to express uh, in one language than in another. Um, and this is what I find interesting. Uh, so uh, uh, in, in, to take things back to ancient languages, uh, mm -hmm. the um, uh, two words that, that uh, come up very quickly in teaching a beginning Greek class are two particles, men and death. Mm -hmm. And these are traditionally uh, translated as on the one hand and on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, sure, that's a, a rough equivalent of what these words do because they do oppose two different uh, ideas. But it's also a lot bulkier saying on the one hand and on mm -hmm. the other than it is simply saying uh, men and death. Mm -hmm. uh, this means it's a lot easier and more natural for uh, a Greek writer, an ancient Greek writer, to express things in terms of um, balanced pairs, uh, which mm -hmm. then lends a certain uh, um, um, uh, veneer to uh, the, the way the, the the style of the language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So, so in this book, what you're interested in then is helping people see kind of what sorts of things are easily. Uh, or naturally uh, communicated in some of these these dead languages, uh, as opposed to other other things. Uh, so both uh, across the different languages, how they're able to or not able to kind of convey things easily, um, and then also maybe in contrast to English, which is the language the book is is written in. Is that is that fair? Kind of what is it that it's yeah, that, 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 that's certainly yeah. yeah 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 no that, that's certainly fair. I mean I, I, another. Um, uh, metaphor that I like using uh, to describe the language, different languages is that they have different flavors. Uh, mm -hmm. That there are just certain uh, things that, um, uh, that that just as one can enjoy, uh, I don't know, one likes to sort of go, go out to uh, different um, nationalities of restaurants mm -hmm. uh, in, in, uh, in order to have a sampling of, of Asian food or Italian food or the like. And there's something that's a little bit different uh, about mm -hmm. all of them, even if they begin with the basic, uh, certain basic ingredients. Mm -hmm. um, so too with languages, you sort of start yeah. from some basic ingredients that, that are probably universal to all languages, but then different mm -hmm. languages do different things with them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, especially uh, seeing the languages rooted in a particular uh, cultural context, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, uh, one can uh, start, um, 
really appreciate better what the relationships are between them and, and, and why um, Greek might have a certain feel to it and, mm-hmm. uh, that's different mm-hmm. from the feel that Latin has uh, mm-hmm. for an English speaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So maybe let's continue the metaphor of the flavor. So you're saying there's certain mm-hmm. basic, you know, basic parts, right? And so, you know, you, you different flavors, you can have sort of related dishes that have some of the shared, uh, shared constituent parts, but they vary in different ways. Well, in language, uh, there are certain sort of features or, or, or parts of a language. And throughout the book, you're, you're, you're sort of taking these in turn. And so maybe before we dig into Greek and Latin, what are some of these different features? So you talk about phonology, morphology, and the lexicon. Um, what are these concepts? How are they related to language? That's going to help us with um, when we get into them. No, it's, it's, it's very important in discussing um, language to have the proper terminology for the constituent parts of the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, it's easiest to think of these in terms of um, starting from the smallest building blocks and then expanding from there. Uh, and um, because languages essentially are systems that create meaning out of sounds. Uh, and, and one begins with uh, the sounds of the language um, and uh, because different languages have different sets of sounds uh, at their disposal. Uh, and this is the branch of linguistics uh, called phonology uh, that talks about um, the, uh, the, the sounds of the language, how they work as a system within that uh, particular language. But you're not gonna get very far if you only have sounds to work with, you need to build them up into words. Uh, and um, uh, if you are interested in building up a, uh, and sort of uh, building a new word or doing things with uh, uh, changing the form of a given word, uh, then you need the, the uh, subdivision of linguistics called morphology uh, from uh, the Greek word uh, for form. Uh, and uh, this is, um, uh, with morphology, we're doing things uh, that, that, that are either what's called inflectional morphology, changing the shape of a given word, so adding an S to make it plural in English, uh, or we're doing derivational morphology, where we're um, taking one word and uh, building a, a, a new word off of it, perhaps by adding a prefix or a suffix, so forming playful from play. Um, so once you've done that uh, uh, and you've built your words, then you need to arrange them somehow. And uh, this gets into the, um, uh, the, the area of syntax uh, uh, with, with um, a word order uh, being uh, important in uh, creating meaning, especially in a language like English, where uh, whether or not a noun is a subject or an object of a verb um, uh, is uh, dependent on word order. Uh, unlike a language like Latin or Greek, where it's dependent on the morphology. Uh, and this is, one reason why it's so useful to introduce terms like this because um, it's a lot uh, neater to say that uh, and, that, that uh, Greek and Latin can do with morphology what English does with syntax or word order uh, mm-hmm. than it is to be if you don't have morphology as, as a word at your disposal for mm-hmm. talking about uh, the fact that Latin and Greek have lots of endings uh, that they mm-hmm. can slap onto nouns mm-hmm. or verbs. Um, now, all of these sort of um, uh, grammatical building blocks get applied to the stock of vocabulary that a language has, its lexicon. Uh, and uh, insofar as uh, we often think of particular words as being associated with particular uh, cultures, it could be useful to highlight a couple of key words uh, from a language as well to, to give uh, an indication of, of 
how that language is viewed. And I uh, keep reaching for schadenfreude as being sort of a word that we think <laughs> was being especially German. Uh, right, right. Uh, but, but, but one can come up with similar words for um, ancient languages as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. So then let's, let's dig in here. We've got a few languages to, to get through. Let's start with Greek and Latin. You've been talking about those sort of as a, as a pair. And I think there's some good reasons for that. So how, how are they related, these two languages? And how do we know what their relationship is? So uh, the, the interesting thing about Greek and Latin is that uh, they are studied together because they're related uh, culturally. And they are, in fact, also related uh, at a purely linguistic level. Mm-hmm. although uh, it is primarily the cultural reasons that predominate and why these two get paired in a group rather than the strictly speaking linguistic reasons. What do I mean by, by any of that? Um, well, the main thing that Greek and Latin share uh, at a linguistic level is that they are both Indo-European languages. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, the Indo-European languages are a family of languages uh, spoken um, uh, all the way from uh, Ireland and the, the north, uh, and Iceland in the northwest to uh, India and in the in the southeast, um, and then in the uh, post-colonial age, a wider field than that even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are all languages uh, that uh, can be shown to have derived from a single common ancestor uh, called Proto-Indo-European. Uh, This might seem a pretty bold claim. Uh, How can we tell that uh, Old Irish and Sanskrit, Greek and Latin all go back to a common source? Uh, And the answer um, uh, is simply that that there are too many shared similarities between them in terms of their vocabulary and in terms of the grammatical patterns uh, that they use for the the endings that they have for expressing um, number on nouns or person and number on verbs. There are too many similarities for this uh, simply to be uh, uh, due to chance uh, or due to borrowing. Uh, and uh, uh, in fact, um, given the fact that the correspondences of the sounds in particular are governed by remarkably regular patterns, uh, it's in fact possible to reconstruct uh, what the parent language Proto-Indo-European would have looked like. So um, to make this a little bit more uh, specific, it's, it's um, a little bit hard not to, I mean, usually when I teach this in class, I have a blackboard to work with, so it's a little yeah. bit strange. Trying to, so I'm so trying to do this all uh, right. um, uh, simply descriptively with words. Mm-hmm. But uh, one can get a sense of this by thinking about um, some common words uh, for, um, uh, uh, say, the words for father and fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, these both start with an F uh, in, uh, in English. Uh, but the Latin words for father uh, and fish are, uh, pat, uh, are pater and fiscus, and they both start with a P. Uh, the word for foot uh, is, uh, starts with an F uh, in English and starts with a P, uh, pes, pedis, uh, in, in Latin. Uh, so uh, this sort of correspondence, which can be extended to a, a host of different words, um, uh, is... Uh, uh, best explained uh, by uh, uh, positing that uh, there was a parent language that had uh, one sound, in this case, probably P, which remained a P in Latin, but changed to an F in in the Germanic languages. Uh, It might seem a little bit arbitrary to say, uh, why should the P change to the F? Why not the other way around? Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, once we start uh, looking at other languages, we see that uh, Greek also has words for father and foot that start with a P. And Sanskrit also has words Mm -hmm. for father and foot that start with a P. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
so uh, if you, uh, uh, that combined with the fact that uh, we do have the attested history of certain uh, historical languages, so we can get a sense for which sound changes are a little bit likelier to occur mm -hmm. than others. Uh, and a, a P weakening to an F is a little bit easier than an F hardening into a P. Mm -hmm. um, uh, given this, uh, we, we can get a good sense that all of these languages, uh, the Germanic languages, the Celtic languages, uh, Latin, Greek, uh, the Indo-Iranian languages, Balto-Slavic, uh, Armenian, um, all these languages go back to one common language. Mm -hmm. Now, um, to, to zero back in on Greek and Latin in particular, right. um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, because, uh, we study Greek and Latin together culturally uh, yeah. for, for cultural reasons, because uh, the, uh, uh, the Romans in particular were heavily influenced by uh, uh, Greek culture uh, and sort of speaking Greek as an ancient Roman was uh, a sign of uh, an expected sign of Polish and education, mm -hmm. uh, much as uh, speaking French would have been in, in 19th century England. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, because there's so much uh, cultural cross-fertilization between Greece and Rome, um, uh, this uh, becomes an, uh, a field of study that we know as classics. Um, and it's easy for classicists in particular to assume that the Greek and Latin uh, must somehow be particularly closely related to one another at a linguistic level as well. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because they, they are, I mean, they're not unrelated. They mm -hmm. do, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in fact, share a lot of common features. Uh, but actually, there are. Uh, they, uh, if one does try to uh, prioritize which of the Indo-European sub-branches are more closely related to which, mm -hmm. uh, Latin actually uh, belongs to a branch that's uh, closer to the Celtic languages, mm -hmm. and uh, Greek belongs to a branch that's closer to um, the Indo-Iranian languages, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which we can see with things like how the verbs work. Right. Interesting. So, so it's largely like you're, you're pointing to these, these sort of cultural underpinnings here um, that, that, are, that are responsible. But of course, in, in your book, you're, um, you're trying to also give us a sense of uh, not just the cultural aspects, but the, the sounds of the languages, their, their syntax and things like that. So let's start with the sounds of the language. Let's start with the sounds of, of Greek and Latin. Can you, can you recite a little bit of of ancient Greek to give us a sense of what it would have sounded like uh, someone speaking, singing the Iliad, the, you know, any of these kinds of <laughs> texts. Yeah, but I mean, this always, of course, has to be, um, uh, I'm question, happy to right? do so, but yes, there's all, all inevitably <laughs> disclaimer that, that in mm -hmm. the absence of recordings, we can't know for sure how these things exactly, are pronounced. Right. Uh, although we, uh, we, we can do a pretty good job of, of making educated guesses, but mm -hmm. yeah, um, so just the, um, uh, opening lines of the Iliad. Men in a erete a pele iado acleos, ulo menen, he muri acaios alge eteke, polas diptimus pucas aidi proyapsen, hero on autus de heloria telke cunesen, oio nois de tapasi, dios de teleato bule, exudeta prota dias de tenerisante, atreides te alexandron, caitios acileus. All right, so. Unless our listeners are uh, already classicists familiar with ancient ancient <laughs> Greek, the uh, the hackneyed saying is in everyone's mind. That's all, all Greek to me, right? 
Um, so yes, I suppose you'd like a translation now. <laughs> yeah. So now the question is: Now we want to translate this, but as as you point out in your discussion of this section, there's some challenges that translators face um, in translating this. So maybe, mm -hmm. well, what what does it mean that you just said, just roughly? And then what are some some spots where uh, we can see the different flavor of, of Greek as opposed to English? So first, just to give a, a rough translation, yeah. uh, sing the wrath goddess of Peleus son Achilles accursed wrath, which made countless pains for the Achaeans and sent forth many noble souls to Hades, souls of heroes, and it made them pray for the dogs and for all the birds, and the will of Zeus was being accomplished. From the point when they first were at odds, having quarreled, both Atreus son Agamemnon, lord of men, and godlike Achilles. Uh, so in terms of uh, sort of issues that translators face, uh, one can begin with the very first word poem, manin. Mm -hmm. uh, it begins with the word for rage or wrath. Um, uh, the problem being uh, that it, is, it has an N at the end of it, which is a signal that it is in the so-called accusative case. Um, uh, this is where morphology um, uh, comes into play. It's, it's in, it means it has an ending that signals that it is the object of the verb. Uh, the verb that, that follows immediately, uh, the imperative aede, sing. Now, uh, in English, uh, we kind of need to have our objects follow our verbs. Uh, if we said, wrath, sing, anger, sing, uh, we, we're, we're left with uh, something which doesn't make sense, uh, as, as a, it doesn't work as, as English syntax. Uh, so we uh, have to put the, uh, the noun as an object after it, sing, uh, sing the wrath, sing of the wrath. Mm -hmm. um, now, one can, uh, the problem with this, however, uh, is that it doesn't do justice to the fact that uh, the very first word of the poem, which is prime literary real estate, mm -hmm. uh, is the word for anger, not the mm -hmm. word for singing. And so we've mm -hmm. lost something in the translation if we start with the word for singing rather than this really focal key word uh, of, of wrath. Uh, there are ways around this. Uh, Robert Fagels in his translation simply doubles the word uh, and translates rage in dash, uh, in dash, uh, goddess sing the rage of Peleus son Achilles, mm. uh, which is one way of dealing with this, a, 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 quite a nice way, it, it seems to me, but it does um, uh, suggest uh, perhaps that uh, the syntax is a little bit more disjointed uh, than, is, than is really the case, where it's perfectly smooth syntax in Greek to have the object first and the, um, and the verb following. So uh, that's the sort of issue where uh, these, uh, um, the concepts of morphology uh, and word order and syntax uh, interact in a, 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 in a neat way with uh, Greek morphology allowing a pattern of word order that English um, just can't do. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, there are also other um, uh, slightly, I don't know, let's say higher order mm -hmm. literary issues in play here as well. That the word manus uh, happens to be used primarily of gods mm -hmm. uh, in, the, uh, in the Iliad. And so it's a little bit um, striking to see it being used of Achilles, mm -hmm. uh, but then the, the uh, excerpt ends with Achilles being described as dios, uh, an adjective mm -hmm. that, can, that can mean either godlike uh, or brilliant, uh, and which again sort of uh, is a little bit fuzzy in terms of how much divinity it's attributing to um, uh, Achilles, who after all has a divine mother. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I pity the translator who's trying to work out mm -hmm. how to actually convey uh, all of this uh, additional resonance that you have if you have the Greek yeah. words uh, dealing with a, 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 an English translation. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you're you're pointing to here. There's the you have the trying to to catch all of these different constituent parts: the sound, the the morphology, the things that make up the sense. There are, there are choices here. The, you can pick one or the other. Sometimes maybe you can get two, but getting all of these sort of flavors, to use the metaphor that we're using, uh, at once just seems uh, basically impossible for a translator. You're going to have to choose what the dominant flavor is you want to want to pick up. Yeah. So so then so Greek and, and Latin we're putting in, in a pair here, sort of in our conversation. So maybe we can turn to Latin. Can you give us an excerpt of Latin to? contrast them how, how do they sound are they different in their sounds they sound the same and we can talk about their their meaning and structure uh so uh for latin i suppose i'll, I'll read um something which is similar in that it uses a related uh poetic form mm-hmm. uh poetic meter uh, uh the opening of horace's uh, ode four seven uh defu get anyways ready untiam gramina campis arboribus becomai Mutat terra vices, et decrescentia ripas flumina praeteriunt. Which I'll, I'll translate uh, mm-hmm. using A.E. Hausman's uh, uh, translation of it. Uh, the snows are fled away, leaves on the shaws and grasses in the mid renew their birth. The river to the riverbed withdraws, and altered is the passion of the earth. Okay. So they sound different, right? So, so what, what is it that we're hearing that's different in the sounds? Uh, Specifically, what's responsible for that difference? Uh, well, uh, one thing that characterizes uh, the sound of Latin uh, as opposed to Greek is that uh, whereas Greek uh, retained uh, sounds uh, that were so called aspirates, pa, mm-hmm. ta, and ka, um, mm-hmm. as the letters which uh, are now actually pronounced as fricatives, uh, mm-hmm. phi, uh, theta, and chi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Latin changed a lot of these sounds to Fs and Hs, and so we get, uh, with, with the, the double F in dipugere, uh, we end up getting a sound which is, is not a very Greek sound. Mm. Um, uh, so that, that's one difference in the phonology. Um, in terms of the uh, morphology of, of Latin, uh, I mean, uh, the languages are alike, and they, uh, compared to English, they are both languages which are rich in endings for verbs and nouns, and so mm-hmm. they both are able to do uh, a lot more, um, they can play a lot more with word order in mm-hmm. order to, um, uh, because the, without obscuring the syntax. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what's different uh, about Latin as a language relative to Greek in terms of its structure, uh, a couple of things that stand out. Um, Greek, like English, has a definite article. Uh, Latin mm-hmm. does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, one thing that really comes across in Hausman's uh, translation there is something like, um, uh, the, the very first two words of the poem are "difugere niwes," so just two words in Latin. Uh, the first verb means uh, sort of literally uh, they have uh, they have scattered. Uh, the second word is the word for snows. Uh, but what's just two words of Latin uh, becomes five words in Husband's translation: "The snows mm. are fled away." Um, now, uh, this gives Latin superficially. Uh, the appearance of, of being a, a very concise language, uh, a very mm-hmm. matter-of-fact to the point language. None of these sort of helping verbs needed. Uh, we don't need are or away uh, because we can express mm-hmm. all this with our single verb form, defugere. We don't need to have mm-hmm. both the and snows uh, mm-hmm. because we can do that all just with, with niwes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, it's a little bit misleading because uh, if you start turning things like syllable count instead, then mm -hmm. Latin actually mm -hmm. ends up being um, uh, comparable to English. Right. Uh, but it, it remains the case that uh, uh, if you're looking at a Latin text, it often has far fewer words mm -hmm. uh, than a corresponding English text. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so that's uh, one respect in which uh, uh, Latin is, it does have something a little bit going, different going forward than Greek. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good, and we'll, we'll, it seems like this is a theme too that we'll see pick up in some of the other languages, this sort of relative economy with, um, with uh, lexical units. Let's say, I mean, like you were saying, in terms of syllables, it, it may turn out that some of them uh, are, are, are similar in terms of um, you know, syllable count, but in terms of discrete lexical units, it seems like some of these uh, dead languages are able to do a lot more than, than English is able to do in, um, in terms of uh, expressing meaning. Yeah, so, it certainly... Yeah. No, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly is one of the respects in which um, uh, it is useful to view uh, th these dead languages uh, as a group, because th th that is one, it, with these particular languages at least, uh, it does seem to be a shared feature of them relative to modern languages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, yeah. Of course, the other thing too, which uh, really should be said about Latin, uh, and the sound that it has for English speakers, which may be hard to get from uh, hearing a random uh, or a non-Latin speaker to hear. Mm -hmm. It's nothing you're going to hear so much when you just have a four lines of chorus thrown at you. But uh, if you look at it on the page, uh, it looks a lot more familiar than Greek does, not only mm -hmm. because of the alphabet, which is a, a pretty trivial difference, sure. uh, but because of the, so much more of English vocabulary uh, is taken from Latin, uh, either um, and directly or by way of French. Yeah. And one of the things which makes uh, why uh, which makes Greek kind of special as a language for English speakers is that the sort of vocabulary that we borrow from Greek enters a different um, register of English mm -hmm. than what mm -hmm. we borrowed from Latin. Yeah. So uh, things, disciplines like anthropology, geology, history, music, mm -hmm. physics, mm -hmm. uh, these mm -hmm. all get what are ultimately Greek names. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the sad thing for, for Latin is that uh, if you sort of um, look at your inbox and, and mm -hmm. sort of think about the, the, the emails that you're getting from, say, the university administration, mm -hmm. words like report, committee, educational, <laughs> curriculum, <laughs> assessment, exercise, and yes, administration itself, <laughs> these are all coming from Latin. Uh, right. So it's it's very hard at some level to, uh, as an English speaker, not to see the sort of bureaucratic veneer when mm -hmm. you're reading Latin and you have to remember, mm. no, no, th these words are not polluted yet for the Latin speakers. <laughs> uh, they, 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 they are still uh, really fresh and vibrant ways of expressing mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let's, uh, let's turn to um, uh, the old English and Germanic languages. Uh, you you made reference to some of to these a little bit already in ta talking about um, about you know English and its relationship to uh, sort of Proto-Indo-European languages. So uh, let's uh, let's try and situate these languages. How old is Old English, uh, and would an English speaker today be able to understand? It? I mean, it's it's just Old English, right? Uh, what's the, what's the difference here? Uh, so uh, Old English. Uh, would, uh, as a matter of most Old English, 99% of Old English would not be comprehensible to mm -hmm. uh, a modern English speaker. Um, it refers um, uh, not to something as uh, similar to modern, to, to contemporary English as, say, Shakespeare, which counts mm -hmm. as uh, early modern English. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, broadly speaking, it, it refers to English spoken before the Norman Conquest of 1066. 
Uh, at this point, uh, French, uh, Norman French enters the picture and uh, there's some pretty significant changes in how English works leading to the Middle English period. Uh, so uh, really with Old English, we're looking at the period uh, from uh, roughly well, uh, the fifth century AD when the mm -hmm. Angles and Saxons first um, are invited uh, over uh, mm -hmm. as mercenaries uh, uh, by the Romano-British uh, uh, to, to Britain uh, up to 1066, although uh, the actual uh, records that we have don't start till a couple of centuries after that. Uh, as for how intelligible it would or, or wouldn't be, uh, yeah, by and large, it would not be intelligible, uh, but you can construct sentences in Old English that would be uh, intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Mitchell and Robinson's Guide to Old English actually starts its, its uh, uh, reading practice in Old English with some, some great sentences like, his bed is under him, which mm -hmm. would have been the same, which would be completely comprehensible. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think a nice comparison for this uh, is actually uh, Dutch. Uh, so too with Dutch, you can make up sentences like, uh, the man is here. Uh, mm. which, uh, yeah, you can understand that through an English sure. speaker, but you have to pick your, your vocabulary pretty carefully in right. order to get the words uh, right. that uh, show the relationship between the two. Gotcha. Um, uh, so to give an example that would be um, a little bit uh, uh, more representative of what normal Old English might have sounded like, um, mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll offer uh, the, uh, the Old English of uh, John 3.16, Okay. Uh, so first, uh, in the King James Version, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, in Old English, gold blue will meet on art, swa that he sowed his on canadon sunu, that non ne forwerthe the onhina yeluf, ak habithat echelif. Hmm. Uh, so I, I, I doubt that many listeners mm -hmm. without training in uh, mm -hmm. Old English would, would be able to make much of that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, even if they, uh, with the translation hand, can start to right. see some pretty close similarities. Right. So you're, you spent some time in your book looking at Beowulf, which is maybe if people know anything about uh, Old English and the Germanic languages, a, a literary work people are familiar with. And you, you pick it in some ways because, um, you know, you've looked at the Iliad before and the Iliad and Beowulf have some similarities in both being these lengthy epic poems. Again, we've discussed how they're related to Proto-Indo-European. Um, but the Beowulf has some different features and in particular here we're, you know, this use of compounds I mean, maybe we can talk about. Uh, so could you read us a bit of Beowulf and then talk about the use of compounds in, um, in the language? All right, so um, uh, uh, one bit that I talk about in the book, Swa shall yong guma goda yuwerchan, thromam feofiftum on fader barama, fatina on ilda efti wunigan, will ye see thus gona wee kuma, leodi elastin, loft adam shall, and mighty of adam on your thone. So again, a, a very different sort of sound from the uh, mm. other languages uh, mm -hmm. that we've been, been looking at. And yeah, we, we get this word loft adam, uh, for instance, uh, with uh, words of, uh, with, sorry, with deeds of praise. Mm -hmm. uh, and literally, it's just the two words for praise and deed, both bad, smashed together. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is a very um, uh, Germanic way of doing things. Although I should also say it, it's a, a, a pretty common Indo-European way of doing things, mm -hmm. too. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the simple act of compounding things uh, is something that we see uh, also uh, in, um, in Greek and certainly mm -hmm. in Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's uh, what's a little bit more distinctive uh, about uh, the use of compounds here relative to 
uh, say the Iliad, is that there, uh, there are more of them that, that are nouns as opposed mm -hmm. to adjectives. Um, mm -hmm. uh, if, if we think about uh, the sort of language uh, that's characteristic of even translations of the Iliad, it's things like rosy-fingered dawn, uh, where it's that adjective rosy-fingered uh, mm -hmm. that we see as, as the compound. Uh, and that's perhaps where the center of gravity of the compounds of the Iliad lies, as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, something like um, a word which literally would be praise deed. And mm -hmm. yeah, we, we can make sense of that uh, in English. We could, if we wanted to, have a really literal translation uh, that, that, that translates it like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, we can see why a translator like Donaldson might go for, uh, through deeds that bring praise mm -hmm. uh, as a way of making it a little bit um, more natural, a way of expressing it in the modern language. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. And so um, one of the, the things that you're, again, back to the main thrust of your book that you're trying to point out here is that for someone who's listening to um, Beowulf, um, when they heard, uh, was it Lof Datum, um, they would have uh, not heard it so much as praise deeds, but they would have had a, an understanding of its meaning in context, but it would have uh, been conveyed in this compound form. Whereas someone who's listening to the poem in translation, um, they're, they're hearing the content in a different way, in a different structure. And so there's some aspect that's just a, a different kind of flavoring to how we're experiencing the the poem, even if maybe we can get onto the same meaning. Is that is that kind of close to what you're trying to point out? Yes, it's, it's certainly close. I, I, I should also, however, be be careful in noting that um, we, we also need to regard this as being a particular uh, type of Old English. This is poetry. Mm -hmm. And so it's right. not, uh, this is not the way the Anglo-Saxon on the street would have spoken. <laughs> uh, and and the, the, sort of the, the, the density of the compounds that one gets uh, does seem to be indicative of a more poetic register mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of language. Uh, that said, there are enough of them, and this seems to be common in a feature of, of all the uh, early Germanic poetic traditions, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it, it seems that they would be sort of accustomed to hearing mm -hmm. uh, this sort of, of, of compound noun with, with uh, greater frequency than we are now. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, let's let's keep keep pressing on. We have uh, a lot of languages in the in the book to look at, uh, and another one is. Old Irish. So you look at Old Irish and uh, Welsh, and you know maybe this, at least to me, it was uh, a little surprising. I don't know much about Old Irish, and you said that it's arguably the most difficult of the Indo-European languages. You know, and I, I would have thought, well, Sanskrit certainly has <laughs> some pride of place there, right? But uh, you, you use some sentences to sort of exemplify Old English and to show some of the the difficulty in it, um, and also again, like we've been saying, some of the the flavor here. So. Um, let's start with Old Irish before we get to, to Welsh. Can you read a little bit of Old Irish for us? Talk to us about what it is that's, um, that's so difficult about it. Yes, so um, the, the thing about so, so certainly Sanskrit also um, a, a difficult language. I, I don't mean to minimize by any means the amount of effort <laughs> oh, it takes no, no, to, to, no. Learn it, to learn it well. Um, now, but the thing about uh, Old Irish that makes it different from Sanskrit is uh, a vastly greater amount of irregularity. Uh, for the most part, uh, if you're learning um, uh, how a Sanskrit noun or verb works, there will be other nouns or verbs that follow that same pattern. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, with, with Irish, one is not nearly so lucky. Uh, right. And uh, there uh, is a general tendency uh, as uh, in, in the history of languages, uh, languages like to be regular. Um, mm -hmm. And so you uh, often have at one point, um, an equilibrium where you have a regular pattern of endings that you put on a noun. Uh, but then you might have a sound change take place. 
And sound changes uh, typically take place in a way that uh, has no respect for endings as such. Uh, it will simply, uh, that sound change will take place no matter where that sound is in a word, whether or not it's in the middle of the word, uh, sort of the, the root of the word, or if it's in an mm -hmm. ending where it's doing something different. Mm -hmm. And uh, often once a sound change has taken place, it will affect part of a class of words, but not another part of that class of words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what used to be a single pattern becomes two patterns. Now, sensible languages then typically mm -hmm. uh, decide, no, no, but this is too cognitively um, uh, difficult, we, we can't have these two separate patterns, and what's called analogical leveling takes place. Uh, what, what happened, two different uh, patterns get leveled out, a single pattern spreads by analogy from one class to the other. <laughs> and what makes Old Irish hard is that uh, they were not very keen on doing analogical leveling. Uh, mm -hmm. They sort of accumulated one sound change after another, uh, each progressively making, um, sort of splintering things into multiple patterns uh, and, and never sort of going back and uh, straining things out again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, this is what makes it um, uh, particularly challenging uh, as a language. Mm -hmm. so you end up with things like uh, the word for woman and the uh, nominative singular is ban, and in mm -hmm. the nominative plural it's manal, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, not a very um, uh, easy pattern to, uh, mm -hmm. to remember. Yeah. So, so it's complicated in, in its uh, irregularity. And you just gave us one example, at least of a, of a single a single word and um, inflect, uh, inflected differently. Um, what about some longer passages? Um, you you uh, you talk a little bit about that. There's some difficulties in in getting um, getting the literature. I think in the first place mm -hmm. because of limitations on what we have extant and things. But um, what's what's a good example for us? Uh, what kind of literature is it from? Uh, so uh, the probably the most um, uh, famous work uh, written in some form of medieval Irish is the the Toyn Bo Cúilinge, uh, the, the Cattle Raid of Cooley. Uh, and this is uh, part of what's called the Ulster Cycle, um, uh, which is a um, collection of stories about um, uh, heroes who are uh, geographically located largely in the north of Ireland, hence the term mm -hmm. Ulster Cycle. Um, and uh, the, in the Toyn Bo Cúilinge, uh, the, the main hero is this Cúilinge, uh, whose name uh, literally means uh, the, the Hound of Cullen, uh, mm -hmm. and it tells of his uh, heroic deeds when a rival group was uh, trying to um, undertake a cattle raid, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a pretty common class of stories in, mm -hmm. in medieval Irish literature. Uh, and, and right here, we, we see some respects, in, as, as strange a language as, as uh, Irish can, can be at, at, at first glance, uh, the fact that Cullen's name Ku, uh, the first element is the word for hound or dog, and that's mm -hmm. uh, cognate with um, canis in Latin uh, mm -hmm. and kuon uh, in Greek. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the title of the poem, the toyn bo kulinga, bo is the, the word for uh, the, the raid of the cattle, mm -hmm. uh, and that's cognate with bovine, um, mm -hmm. uh, which we get from Latin. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, both, uh, it's, it's certainly less familiar to most uh, English speakers than say the Iliad or mm -hmm. uh, much of Latin poetry, but uh, it, it does ultimately still uh, have an Indo-European background. Mm -hmm. Great, and then um, real briefly, we, I wanna make sure we get to Sanskrit and Hebrew too, but you also talk about Welsh in this mm -hmm. chapter. So how is Welsh related to Irish, uh, historically and, and linguistically? Well, both Welsh and Irish uh, belong to the Celtic branch um, of the uh, Indo-European family. 
and um, all uh, branches are characterized by particular um, changes that they uh, undergo together. Uh, one of the most famous ones about the Celtic languages is that they lost all their inherited um, P sounds. Mm -hmm. And so all those words for, um, uh, for father and fish uh, don't start with any consonant. And so uh, rather than pater or father, the word for mm -hmm. father in all Irish is author. And the mm. word for fish, rather than being piscus or fish, is eisc. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's sort of one diagnostic feature of the Celtic languages. Uh, within the Celtic languages, uh, they uh, the uh, best uh, the best known. I mean, there are some spoken further back in antiquity that are uh, whose uh, affiliations are a little bit more vexed. But in, in terms of Irish and Welsh, they belong to the two main branches of the Celtic languages spoken today. Mm -hmm. uh, which are in effect characterized by whether or not they um, uh, reintroduced a P sound and how quickly mm -hmm. they did. Uh, so um, the, uh, we, we can see this happening with words that originally started with a, a, a qua sound. Uh, the words for four and five um, uh, um, were something like the Latin words quatuor and quinque. Uh, and uh, in uh, and uh, in Irish, uh, these continue to have a sort of K sound at the start. So the words are cathar and coig, uh, mm -hmm. but this qua sound turns into a P in uh, Welsh, uh, leaving us with pedwar and pimp as the words mm -hmm. for four and five. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So, so that gives us sort of a sense of both the relationship of them to one another and then the relationship more broadly to the other, other languages. So let's let's shift gears. We have two other two other languages we can maybe touch on briefly. So uh, you talk about Sanskrit, of course. This is a language close to close to my own heart, um, uh, and your discussion of it opens up with uh, one of one of my favorite quotes that I, I like to talk about with my classicist friends, uh, uh, with Sir William Jones, who is an Indologist, and he characterizes Sanskrit as more perfect than Greek and more copious than Latin and more exquisitely refined than either one of them. And now, obviously, your book is not making these kinds of uh, evaluative sort of comparisons uh, about languages, but you do observe some ways in which Sanskrit is like uh, Greek and Latin. So, so what are some of these similarities? And, you know, maybe you can point to what, what people conclude based on them. Well, uh, one similarity um, uh, is sort of right there at the very beginning uh, of uh, the first uh, Sanskrit text that I talk about, um, which is the opening of the, the Rig Veda. Uh, the very first uh, uh, hymn opens Agni Me'ile, uh, I praise uh, Agni, the god of fire. Uh, right from the start, we see an object that's placed uh, before its verb in a way that we can't do in English, but we can do as we saw in Greek and also in, in Latin. Uh, we also see that uh, uh, Agni's name here ends in an M. Uh, mm -hmm. This is historically the same as the N that marked it as being an object in uh, main as being an object in Greek. Uh, we also see, uh, um, to uh, uh, shift to a different uh, European uh, language, that his name is cognate with uh, the Latin word ignis, uh, the word for fire. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's um, not as uh, foreign, uh, I mean, when one sees Agni, especially if one sees in Devanagari, uh, the, mm -hmm. the uh, proper writing system for it and it looks completely uh, opaque, but uh, there's actually quite a lot that that's, that's uh, familiar. Yeah. Uh, the very next line, Yadnyasya Devam Urtijam, the word Devam for divine is again uh, maps uh, very closely onto the English word divine, which we have mm -hmm. from, uh, from Latin. Uh, and finally, to give uh, a, a, another example of a, a, a more 
uh, grammatical feature. Uh, uh, I mean, he keeps being described by these various uh, positives. Uh, he's the, the chief priest, the hotaram, and the most giving of treasure, ratnadatamam. And uh, oh, this tamam suffix, ratnadatamam, is equivalent to the most that we see in the uh, English, most uh, giving or granting of treasure. And uh, that might not seem like a connection uh, until we consider some of the words that we have in English uh, that uh, go back to uh, Latin and its superlatives, uh, where we get, uh, we have words like uh, the Latin word for um, best uh, is optimum, which has the same tamum suffix, uh, and words like, um, I don't know, uh, intimate and ultimate uh, go back to the Latin words intimum and ultimum, uh, which again have uh, timum and uh, attached onto uh, uh, these uh, stems in and ul. So uh, just with sort of picking just three very short lines of, of Sanskrit text, we can actually find quite a few grammatical features that, that map directly onto uh, Greek mm -hmm. and Latin. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, um, so the, it has these sort of shared, uh, shared features. What, what kind of would make a flavor that's Sanskritic here? So again, thinking back to our, our metaphor, what would make something um, Sanskritic versus uh, Latinate or, or Greek in its, maybe in its sound or its structure? Uh, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, <laughs> the, um, I mean, in terms of sound, I mean, one thing which strikes uh, anybody who's learning Sanskrit is um, the feature of Santi. Uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, a feature whereby, um, in English, uh, when we pronounce words in quick succession, mm -hmm. we don't articulate the boundaries between the words. And so a sequence like, don't you think, becomes, don't you think. And we actually take the, the sound of the T of don't changes a little bit in front of the U, the, the Y sound of U, and be becomes uh, the Afghan Sh. Uh, and yeah, we, we occasionally write this out in English if we're doing, uh, if we're uh, writing dialogue that's supposed to be uh, mm -hmm. colloquial, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a regular feature of how we represent our language. Right. Uh, not so Sanskrit. Uh, mm -hmm. Sanskrit very systematically indicates uh, the changes that take place when the end of one word uh, butts up against the beginning of the next word. Uh, and so uh, it, it does provide... Um, a really beautiful um, continuity of, of sound uh, that one that sees on the page in a way that one doesn't get uh, in um, uh, standard editions of Greek and Latin or English. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Sunday is uh, the bane of many an, uh, a starting Sanskrit student for sure, and sometimes even those of us who've been with the language for a while. So um, in the time we have left, let's make sure not to, to omit Hebrew. This is the one Semitic language in the book that you treat. Uh, so maybe let's start with what's the difference between Indo-European and Semitic languages, and why would you look at a book on on uh, why would you look on Hebrew uh, in a book on um, you know primarily Indo-European dead languages? Uh, so um, uh, the, the the chief difference uh, uh, between the Indo-European languages and the Semitic languages is they go back to different common ancestors, um, whereas. Um, uh, the Indo-European uh, languages all go back to Proto-Indo-European. Languages like Hebrew, Arabic, and Akkadian all go back to a common ancestor called Proto-Semitic. Um, and uh, they do have many of the same categories uh, that uh, Indo-European languages have. So 
yeah, nouns get different endings if they're plural, or verbs uh, uh, change the form to indicate that they're uh, a different tense. Uh, but a lot of the formal ways that Semitic languages do this uh, are, are a bit different. Um, uh, and so it can be useful to see um, uh, what the different options are um, uh, for uh, forming tenses, let's say, in a different way, uh, for doing morphology in a different way. Uh, in particular, what the, probably the most famous fact about the Semitic languages is that they have uh, triconsonantal roots uh, as the building block of the language. Uh, and so we, we see this even with borrowings from Arabic into English of uh, Islam and Muslim and Salam uh, as, as three different words. They all have that SLM sequence uh, as, a, um, as, a, as a common root, uh, but different prefixes get sort of put at the start or different words are, uh, are inserted in the middle of them, mm -hmm. sometimes between the first and second consonant, sometimes between the second and third consonant. Uh, and this is something which doesn't work in the same way in the Indo-European languages. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that we don't have roots like this. Uh, we, we see something sort of similar with um, English patterns like ride, road, ridden, uh, mm -hmm. where we can uh, play around with what vowel we have in the middle of a, a word there. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there's typically, with an Indo-European root, only that one slot that you're really playing mm -hmm. around with. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, uh, with the triconsonantal root system of the Semitic languages, you have... Um, two places, two slots word internally to, uh, to play around with in addition to prefixes and suffixes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's useful to uh, look at Semitic languages so just as a chance to see, um, to learn more about how the Indo-European ones works by contrast mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and, and to learn what's specific to them as opposed to just generally um, a, a principle of how languages work. Right. So, uh, so uh, that's, yeah. I was just gonna ask you to maybe show us uh, an example or speak, you know, uh, give us an example of some some Hebrew for for that purpose. Uh, so just uh, to, to keep it relatively short, uh, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps uh, the bit of uh, Genesis four eight um, uh, in uh, in English uh, first. Uh, this is uh, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. So we are getting different sounds here. The Semitic languages have many more uh, uh, sounds uh, that are pronounced further back in the throat uh, mm -hmm. than we have in the in most of the uh, uh, older Indo-European languages. Although mm -hmm. Proto-Indo-European itself probably had some of these sounds. Um, uh, but one of the things that's most distinctive here is, uh, as we see in the translation, this. Um, uh, for a phrase, and it came to pass when they were mm. in the field, which actually other translations like the New Revised Standard leave out and simply say, and when they were in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, but Hebrew is very fond of using this form, vayahi, and it was, and it came to pass, uh, in, a, in a way that forms a, a syntactic hook to hang various sorts of dependent clauses on. It's uh, mm. characteristic of the, the Hebrew uh, Bible. Translators picked up on this and it becomes mm -hmm. uh, a feature of um, sort of um, biblical pastiche language as well, mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. it worked its way into Greek and from Greek into Latin right. and from Latin into English. Right. By way of the Septuagint and so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. Um, great. So this this has been a, a sort of a jaunt through a romp through i don't know what the word would be through a quick quick run through several several languages many thousands of years worth of uh, linguistic uh, change 
And the book, of course, goes into a lot more detail about each of them, gives many more more examples uh, that maybe listeners who are interested in can can take a look at that. Um, But let's let's just wrap up by thinking about um, the book doesn't really have a conclusion in the sense that you're you're showing us a bunch of these different languages and pointing out some very specific um, you know similarities and differences and things like that. So um, maybe let's let's end with this. returning a little bit to why you wrote this book, what, what at the end of uh, reading this book, do you hope listeners take away in terms of why, why, why are these languages interested, uh, interesting for us? Uh, we're, you know, thousands of years away from the, the Bible and Beowulf and, and so on. What, what should we learn from this book? I think it's precisely because we're thousands of years away from them that they're, um, uh, that they're worth looking at. I mean, uh, how many of us are doing things today that we can be confident that 2,000, 3,000 years from now, they will matter, that anybody will know that we've done them? Uh, the mere fact that uh, these texts have survived for so long gives them, uh, in my eye, a sort of transcendence that, that makes it a, a downright sublime matter to be able to, um, uh, to, to be part of a conversation that includes them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so largely just for a sense of uh, perspective on where we are now, where we've come from, a sense of uh, humility of, of, of uh, knowing that we're, we only occupy a really small uh, um, uh, slice of, of, of human history ourselves. And um, that uh, insofar as, um, I mean, just as if you really want to uh, get to know a, a great city like Paris, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you need to actually go there and speak French with the natives mm-hmm. and, and understand uh, the language through which they view the world. And similarly, um, the closest we get uh, to, tra- to time travel is to uh, be able to read these texts in their original language. To, to pick up the book and to learn, learn some, uh, some languages. Uh, what, what are you working on now that uh, the book is, is finished? What are your other projects? Uh, now, uh, at the moment, I'm working on trying to teach online, as <laughs> most of my fellow like most faculty of us, are. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, now, but my, my next project is um, uh, uh, back to a, a more uh, narrow scholarly audience mm-hmm. of, of, of people working on Greek, uh, a book on Greek prose style. Uh, okay. There's been uh, a lot of work uh, done recently in, in Greek linguistics on... Um, uh, things like how world order works, uh, which is mm-hmm. really not well understood until as recently as 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while there's been a lot of good linguistic research on this, uh, people haven't been doing so much with um, understanding um, how different Greek authors are manipulating the basic rules in, uh, in different ways in order mm-hmm. to achieve their own particular stylistic mm-hmm. goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this is my main, main project right now. Okay. Just curious, what uh, which authors are you are you looking at? Uh, I'm uh, I'm not sure yet how many I will end up including. It depends on uh, how big the chapters end up being of the authors that I cover. Uh, but primarily, I'm interested in in, in Attic prose. Uh, so um, yes, I'll probably start with Herodotus. Um, mm-hmm. But I am uh, mostly, I imagine, going to begin with. Um, Thucydides and get as far as I can before the book becomes unmanageably, <laughs> uh, unmanageably big. That sounds great. Well, thank you again for your time, Coulter. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll have a link up to, to the book, How Did Languages Work? Uh, just out not too long ago by uh, Oxford University Press. Thanks for your time. Thank you.